Welcome to your Friday Daily Delivery. I'm your host, Michael Rand. I know I say this almost every day, but we really have a lot to talk about today. I'll be joined in a little while by Star Tribune Timberwolves beat writer Chris Hine, talking Timberwolves, talking Malik Beasley's 12-game suspension, and breaking down the first two games of the Chris Finch coaching era. But first, what did I miss? Oh my goodness. You missed an unfathomable Gophers loss to Northwestern in men's basketball on Thursday night. Gophers playing in a game they absolutely have to have, right? Chips Goggins was on the show a couple days ago talking about what they need to do to get in the tournament. Basically, it comes down to avoid bad losses, right? Even even with everything that's gone wrong in the last you know month, month and a half to kind of derail this promising start, if you can avoid the bad losses, bank a few wins in these last four games. You've, got, you've still got a pretty good chance to make the tournament, and if you make the tournament, you've got a chance to win a game or two, and then you know everybody feels better about where the season is. But facing a team at Williams Arena that is on a 13-game losing streak, Northwestern, Gophers jump out to a 17-3 to lead, but they end up losing 67-59. to Did injuries to Liam Robbins and Gabe Kalsher play a role? Absolutely, right? Um, we need to say that right off the bat, but that's not an excuse, right? This this is a this is a bad Northwestern team, a really bad Northwestern team, one that had lost 13 consecutive games. You jump on them 17 to three. The big problem is you keep settling for three pointers. This is not a good three point shooting team. In fact, it is one of the very worst in college basketball. The Gophers take more three pointers than almost any other team in major college basketball. How do they do when it comes to making threes? Well, I'm looking at Sport Reference right now, which has the up-to-date numbers. Three-point percentage. Gophers making just 29% on the season. I'm scrolling. I'm scrolling. 333rd in college basketball out of 347 teams that are playing this season. In the game that might define their season Thursday night against Northwestern, they go four for 27. Here's Richard Pitino, head coach, talking about not driving the basketball more. Yeah, we. I mean, we still are getting three-point happy too much. Um, you know, we got to have guys drive the ball versus shoot so many threes. Um, we keep talking about it and talking about it, gets to the rim, gets to the rim. Um, you know, so they probably shot about seven too many, eight too many. So what does this loss all mean? Well, Jeff Goodman, uh, Stadium Sports, tweets last night, you can probably stick a fork in Minnesota now. Just lost to Northwestern at home after a terrific start to the season. They're 4-10 and since December 31st, 6-11 and now in the Big Ten. Yeah, I mean, Marcus Fuller noted this in his game story in Star Tribune, StarTribune.com. You know, they were already starting to be on the wrong end of some of the bracketology. Some of them, you know, looking at last four in, but, you know, more realistically on the wrong side of that bubble. Well, if you lose to Northwestern, the team with a 13-game losing streak at home, yeah, that's uh, that's gonna that's gonna do some damage to your tournament hopes. Still, three more games left in this regular season. None of them against great opponents. No chance to really prove yourself. So all you can do now is avoid another bad loss. Even if they do that, it's gonna be hard to see how they get in at this point. If they don't make the tournament, what does that mean, big picture? Well, hard to say. Um, but I can tell you what uh, Matt Norlander from CBS Sports wrote. Overall record 140 and 118 for Richard Pitino. It comes down to this, he says. If Minnesota makes the NCAAs, Pitino stays. If it doesn't, he doesn't. 
And that was in a piece earlier this week on, you know, hot seats for coaches, and they label Richard Pitino as having one of the hottest seats in coaching. Now, I don't take this lightly. I don't take talk of someone's job status lightly. You know, I, I like Richard Pitino. I think he's done a, a, a decent job here at, at least. But we'll get into a little bit more of that job status here in a minute with some of your questions uh, that I asked for last night after this loss. Okay, let's run through some of those questions right now. SSDIY says, I sat on the couch watching and I think I got more steps in than the Gophers on offense who weren't touching the ball. Yeah, ball movement. You got a way to beat a good defense or a zone defense. You got to move, right? You got to move. You got to cut. You can't settle for those jump shots like Patino is talking about. Nathaniel says, we need to talk about Gopher player body language. It didn't seem to have fight at the end. Carr playing hero ball as if no confidence in other teammates. Has Patino lost the team? hard to say i mean end of game situations that's kind of how they've played i'm more disappointed in the 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 inability to just kind of put northwestern away early you've got a team that's lost 13 in a row you get up 17 to 3 next thing you know it's 19 19 you got a ball game the rest of the way don't let them get into that game at the beginning and we don't worry about body language at the end Danker says, my hot take, Mashburn needs to be running the point. Carr isn't a great facilitator anyways. Maybe that way we can run some sets to get him better shots off the ball. He's literally the only person who can shoot, so let's get him some easy looks from three. Now, I think having Carr and Mashburn on the floor at the same time, which has happened more frequently as Mashburn has entered the lineup and now with Kelsher out, is certainly a net positive when you get two ball handlers out there. You know, you're still a good team when Marcus Carr touches the ball as much as possible. But yeah, some more sets like that I think could could benefit them. I just wonder if it's too late at this point. Almost everything else you guys sent me had to do with Richard Pitino, seven or eight having to do with Richard Pitino and his job status. Lauren, I like this one. This ends the last legacy of Norwood Teague and the mirage of Villa 7. He he pretended to uh, create Villa 7, Villa 7. I can't remember how we pronounced that back then, but yeah. Um, this was a Norwood Teague hire, and, and if this does end up being the end for Richard Pitino, that would close the book uh, on a lot of the hires that Norwood Teague made. Kayla wants to know, what has Pitino done to move the program forward in his eight years? Tell me. Matthew says, I mean, this has to close the book on the Pitino era at Minnesota, right? Again, hard to hard to speculate about somebody's job status. We don't know how the rest of the season plays out. You never know. If they win their last last three games, sneak into the tournament. And we don't, even, we don't even know what Mark Coyle is thinking right now, the athletic director. We don't know what the appetite is to pay a buyout right now, um, like me and Chip talked about a couple days ago. I will say this. When I talked to Mark Coyle for a story a few years ago after they hired Lindsey Whalen, here was a quote he had about the process of hiring coaches. Quote, I like to be very prepared. I have a short list of coaches. If you come to my house in St. Paul, I can open up a desk drawer, and I've got green files of every sport, coaches we want to go after. We constantly update that list because you never know when something is going to happen. When something happens, I believe you have to go quickly. Now, whether that means something's afoot with the Gophers basketball program, I don't know yet, and, and I'm not going to speculate on that. I'm not even going to say Richard Pino should be fired. I think there's some, some things he's done well. I think there's some, some definite deficiencies, and the thing that, that bothers me is how they slide at the end of seasons, but... This much I do know. If they do decide to go in a different direction, it will not be a haphazard search. Mark Coyle will have a target in mind, and that person will be hired quickly and quietly. I'm Nyla Jean Myers, Senior Assistant Sports Editor at the Star Tribune. Thank you for listening to Strip Sports Daily Delivery. This work is made possible by our Star Tribune subscribers. For unlimited access to the articles mentioned in this podcast and our coverage of Minnesota sports from pros to preps, 
Go to startribune.com slash subscribe. Happy to be joined right now by Chris Hine, our first three-time Daily Delivery guest. Chris is tallying all of those up in his head and on an official scoreboard. Chris covers the Timberwolves for the Star Tribune <laughs> and has had a very, very busy week. Uh, not only the hiring of Chris Finch, the firing of Ryan Saunders, but news Thursday late afternoon that Malik Beasley has been suspended for 12 games stemming from uh, his role in uh, the, the events of this fall. Um, Chris, let's, you know, tie a bow on the on the Beasley stuff uh, before we get into the the Finch hiring and the, the kind of the on-court stuff um you know what does the 12 games is that that square with with what we might have thought or how, how do you wh- where does that land in terms of suspensions and what we thought might happen yeah I think it was it was always hard to pin down just exactly how long it was going to be um but 12 games is is a significant suspension for this um and, you know, it, it's it's hard to dispute anything. The Wolves have accepted it. There's going to be no appeal or anything like that. Um, but, you know, I, I think when you read the details of, of what happened and the aftermath of what happened, um, if you go back to earlier this month, our Paul Walsh covered all the details of the sentencing hearing and the family that he uh, threatened with the rifle is, is still suffering uh, traumatic consequences from from the incident. And so the NBA took its time with this decision. They wanted to review the sentencing documents, get all the information they can. And it's taken about, you know, two plus weeks for them to, to get all that in order. And they levied a, a fairly significant decision here. And uh, Beasley will be out about a month. Uh, I did the, did the math. And I think the first game he'd be eligible to return uh, barring any COVID related postponements is March 27th. So he and D'Angelo Russell might return to the lineup again around the same time, but needless to say, a you know uh, a significant absence here uh, as the Chris Finch era gets underway. Yeah, absolutely, um, and that makes his job a little bit more difficult as he's trying to get to know these players. I mean, Malik Beasley has been on the court one of the most consistent players on this team and one of the most durable players on this team this season, and one of their hmm. you know best three point threats um what do you you know as we think about this in an on on the court context how do you think you know in the short term chris finch reallocates those minutes and starts to think about this roster you know in a way that at least in the short term will not include malik beasley yeah uh interesting to think about that you know i think one guy you you might think could see an increased chance is jalen noel because they're going to need somebody to i think play that role of shooter scorer and of, of all the guys on the bench. I think he's best equipped to, to try and, and at least get a chance initially to compensate for that. Maybe we see Jared Culver slide into this role as well. Uh, Josh Akogi, you know, all those kind of guys I think will be jockeying for the extra minutes here. Um, Noel will provide most of the offensive punch. Uh, that would be my initial first blush guess. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, Noel makes sense to me. I mean, if, if, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later on in in the segment, but if, if they want to play, you know, this style that includes, you know, a lot of volume of three pointers in the first game of the Chris Finch coaching era, they shot 54 three pointers. If they want to be able to shoot and, and shoot with accuracy, Noel gives you a good chance. I would think you're right that, 
Um, this certainly increases the chances that Jarrett Culver gets himself back into the rotation, probably includes a little bit of a, a chance for Josh Okogie to to show the new coach what he can do because you know they were already already going to try to figure out how to get you know Culver back into this mix and now there's you know 30 plus minutes a night that have been accounted for with Beasley that are now suddenly available and Noel was already playing some of those minutes um Okogie was already playing some of those minutes maybe Jaden mm-hmm. McDaniels gets a little bit more time but you know as a as a pure shooting guard um you know the the best probably comparable is is maybe Jalen Noel and somebody who could get hot you know maybe not Beasley hot uh in you know fourth quarter time but you know someone who can who can shoot that way yeah I I completely agree um I I think it does represent an increased opportunity for some of those guys and and I think this the suspension just you know I think it serves as a reminder of of the seriousness of of the incident overall and you know it's easy to lose sight of that as you as you track on-court performance but I think today was a reminder of of a of a significant a significant event that happened, the Timberwolves uh, throughout this process have stood by Beasley. They signed him to the New Deal after the incident happened, knowing full well that there were going to be legal and you know league consequences from the signing. Um, he's on three years probation, and one thing about that probation is there's no alcohol use or or illicit drug use uh, as part of the terms of the probation. So he has to he has to kind of mind his p's and q's while while serving the duration of this contract. It is a it is a uh, you know a risky thing. He said he he says he's determined to do so, um, but the only the only thing that will will stand is is his actions over the next three years. You know, good stuff on on that. You've covered that kind of from from start to finish. The with help from Paul from Paul Walsh, obviously. And you know, look for more coverage from Chris on the, the Malik Beasley situation in Friday's paper and on StarTribune.com. Um, I haven't had a chance to talk to you, you know, at least for the podcast, since the Saunders firing, the the Finch hiring. Just maybe just your you know your perspective on how it went down, when it happened, and um, you know, Chris Finch is a name that you had been mentioning to me. Um, for yeah. a while now. So what, you know, your, your level of surprise or unsurprise? Um, I think like a lot of people, I'm surprised at just how quickly things happened and, and transitioned from Ryan Saunders being fired at around 10 o'clock central time on Sunday night to reports leaking out about 10.05 central time that Chris Finch was now going to be the next head coach. I think that the whole process and how quickly it played out was surprising. And as we've seen over the last few days has come under some criticism from various uh, NBA circles for the lack of a, a diverse search and process along those lines. Um, as it pertains to Chris Finch. Um, yes. Uh, we had had conversations about it um, because at the time, uh, you know, just people that, you talk to around the league, the, 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 the gist that I got was that Chris Finch and Roses are, are very close dating back to their time in Houston together. Um, and some people thought at the time that Finch had a, actually had a shot of getting the job before it went to Saunders. Um, so I, you're, you're all, you're always kind of keep an eye on that where it's like, okay, this guy didn't get the job this time, but if it comes open again down the road, you know, will he be available? And, you know, he, he was, wasn't a head coach yet in, in the league. He was an associate head coach for the Raptors. So, 
you know, he was out there and Gerson Roses made the move to go and get him. Um, you know, as we said, it, it drew a lot of criticism, but again, based on kind of what you hear, you had heard at the time, um, it's not, a, it really didn't come as a huge shock to me, at least that Chris Finch is the, is the head coach of the Timberwolves now. You've been in all of the news conferences, the Zoom news conferences, you know, since Monday, I believe, when when Finch was announced and, you know, having gone through some games now, some post games, getting a chance to talk to some players before and after games. How do do we get a sense yet of how this is playing out in in the locker room? I, I know we can't get in the locker room right now, but just even the body language of players or what they're saying, how do you think this is being received among Timberwolves players? Yeah, it's 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 really tough to tell. Um, I think just in some of the interviews, I think there's a there's there's a couple different tones being struck here. I think there there's there's some disappointment over Saunders being let go because Saunders had good relationships with a lot of the players. And I think there probably was a little bit of frustration, at least that's that's not you know that hasn't really bubbled to the surface. But Carly Towns, you know, the other day I thought did a did a commendable job of kind of walking the line of supporting. Uh, Chris Finch and saying he was happy and, and excited to to play, you know, for a new coach and and was you know looking forward to the, to kind of the change. Thanking Ryan Saunders for all that he did for him and saying that they're still you know that they're good friends and and all that he did in his life. And at the same time, acknowledging David Vanterpool and and hoping that Vanterpool gets a head coaching job. I, th- I thought Carl did a did a good job of kind of re- representing the franchise and and being like. The, the voice of the team in that, in that moment on a Tuesday morning when he, when he addressed it for the first time, because I think, and I think that kind of sums it up. I think, I think you could have those kind of, those kind of thoughts where you're a player, maybe you, you wanted to see David Vanderpool get a shot. It's not his time, but at the same time you have a new coach and he's trying to get to know you and you're trying to get to know him and, and for better or worse, like, you know, this is your coach and, and he's the one that's going to be making the decisions and, you know, you give him a chance to, to prove himself. And, and, you know, I, I think that there's, you could have those kind of two tracks of two trains of thought uh, in, in the immediate aftermath of this. And I think that's kind of what you're seeing playing out. I want to get to how Chris Finch wants to play, which is definitely tied to how Gerson Rosas wants to play. But, but first let's, let's talk a little bit about you know, the first two games we've seen and, you know, we're not going to assess Chris Finch as a coach on two games. He's you know just getting to know these players. He's not going to be able to install much of anything till they get a practice, let alone maybe this little mini break between the first and second half of this the season. But what do you think he has learned um, about the players he inherited off the bat? What, what do you glean from the, what, what he's seen, what he feels like he needs to fix versus just what his overall philosophy is right now. Yeah, I think defensively, it's going to be a big work in progress here, um, especially as it relates to how fast they want to play. And I wrote about this for Friday's paper. Um, He wants to increase the tempo and tempo just doesn't mean, you know, playing fast and shooting early in the shot clock. Tempo is ball movement uh, when you get the ball in the half court. And even if the shot comes late in the shot clock, was the action that led to the shot quick and decisive. That's playing with pace. Um, There is a speed factor to it for sure, uh, where you're increasing kind of the number of possessions that you have on a nightly basis. But I think 
melding that with how they want to play on defense, having the energy on both ends of the floor and maintaining that energy throughout a whole game is going to be probably one of the first challenges he's going to face in coming days here. Um, You know, Jared Vanderbilt, I think had a, had a good quote where he said, you know, we're not, we're not out of shape, but it's just, we got to get used to, to, to this new pace. And I think that was a good way of putting it is that it's just a different speed that you have to adjust to. So I think we're going to see that, that adjustment try to play itself out here over the next few weeks. I think it's good that they'll have the all-star break to everybody can kind of catch their breath, uh, you know, regroup, uh, rest for a little bit before the second half of the season comes around because the second half of the season is, is going to be fast and furious in terms of how it's scheduled. So here's my question. And this is where I'm going to get into some, some of my own kind of personal philosophies of, of how this team is constructed and what they're, what they're trying to accomplish. Why do they want to play so fast? Maybe, maybe you can start, maybe we can start there. Cause I don't, I don't get it. Like I, you know, I, I was, I was just wondering the same thing myself. And I actually, I actually was wondering that as I was writing this article and I, and I think I want to, I think I'm going to ask that of, of Chris Finch over the coming days. What is the benefit to playing so fast? I'm not hundred percent certain on that. You know, I, the only thing I could think of is that you, you force the defense into, into making decisions and making mistakes potentially. That's, that's to me would be the, would be the main reason you, you get in the half court, the defense, and, you, and you, if you're playing slow, the defense, you know, has time to defend everything and you're not making them work for 24 seconds out of the shot clock. You're only making them work for 10, maybe um, that would be probably the, the answer, but I'd like to hear his opinions on it as well. Yeah. And I, here's the thing, like they already, it, and I like how you explained it earlier, cause it, it does, there is a difference between taking shots early, like, you know, just, putting up a shot with 17 seconds left on the shot clock and it's not a great shot. You don't want that. You want to play, you want to make quick decisions. You don't necessarily always have to have quick shots, but just in terms of raw pace, they were already pretty fast this year under Ryan Saunders. And they were really fast last year under Ryan Saunders. They were fourth in pace last season. I'm looking at the Hollinger stats right now uh, when they went 19 and 45 uh, year, they led the league in pace 2010, 2011, uh, I believe that was Kurt Rambis's last year. I think they won 17 games that season. So playing fast hasn't always uh, necessarily led to wins with this franchise. And they have tried this before to a certain degree. Um, and the year that they made the playoffs with Tom Thibodeau, they didn't play fast. They were like 22nd in pace. They were fourth in efficiency um, in terms of points, you know, points per you know, hundred possessions, things like that. They didn't necessarily play fast. So, they're going to, they're going to have to do some things to impress me or impress upon me the value of playing fast, because to me, it exposes your defensive defensive deficiencies and that it gives your opponent more possessions too. And if you can't stop them, what's the, what's the point of, of extending a game in that manner? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You know, one way, one way, if you are a, you know, theoretically speaking, if you're an under, if you're an under, manned team in terms of personnel one way to potentially win games is to shorten the game you see that in the nfl with teams with running games i you know i used to cover a college team notre dame that used to employ the quote-unquote burn offense which was to to shorten possessions so so i do wonder that from an analytical standpoint if you if your personnel doesn't match up with the other team why are you trying to create more possessions in a game um instead of short trying to shorten it um you're right it, it yeah, and I think I think Carl had some good thoughts last night too when when he said some of the some of the shots that the Wolves were taking last night against Chicago were quote unquote fast break starters. Yeah, 
this, I like that quote. That was a good kind move. of yeah, kind of long rebound, and and here they go out in transition, and all of a sudden, you know, a, a a quick miss at one end turns into an easy bucket at the other end, and that's that's the the crux of of what you're trying to fix here, and so shot selection is is the big thing. Um, you know, are 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 if you're taking a three, is it a is it an in rhythm three? Is it an open three? Um, you know, if you're, if you're taking a mid range shot, is it, a, is it a smart mid range shot and not just something that's forced or that's maybe a shot clock beater potentially. So I, I think a lot of it goes back to shot selection, even when you do play at the pace that they do. Cause like you said, they have played fast under Ryan Saunders. It's not like they've been a slow team, um, right. but I think it's just a different kind of pace and it has increased a little bit. And the bigger thing and a couple of things we want to get to, and we'll, we'll get out of here. The bigger thing obviously still is if they want to play this way, they, they still need more shooters, right? They, 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 yeah. they, they've made it, they've made an attempt to a certain degree, the Malik Beasley signing, certainly, you know, chief among them, the D'Angelo Russell trade. He's a good three point shooter. When he comes back healthy, you can see that with the, you know, the Wancho Hernan Gomez signing, he's, you know, us more of that stretch four who can make you pay from the outside. And obviously towns, shoots the three well too, but you know, they haven't, you know, they haven't invested quite as much in the, the types of shooters that can make this kind of offense look even better. So I'd imagine that's kind of priority. Uh, the, the top priority for Rosa still is that he hasn't been able to make, he, has, he hasn't been able to, or he just hasn't yet made over this roster to the degree where this type of play that he wants to play will really work. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think you've seen, like you said, some moves in that direction. But yes, I think overall we haven't seen it, and and I and I, I wonder where it comes from and, and where that's going to come. I, I have a feeling it'll come more in the trade market than it will in the free agent market. So I wonder, you know, we'll see what kind of moves he has up his sleeve potentially at the trade line trade deadline this year, and, and then in the off season. Um, but you're right. I, th- I do think I don't think you can have enough shooting, especially when you are trying to build this offense around Carl, who isn't afraid to go into the post, is going to draw attention in the post, and that could create open shots. He had 11 assists against Milwaukee mm-hmm. this game. That was a career high for him. I think that was that was very notable that he had 11 assists in the first game of the Chris Finch era. If he's facilitating and hitting open guys and they're hitting shots, like that's that's an effective it's an effective formula. Um, going forward. So you're right, you know, instead of, you know, instead of having some of these guys who struggle shooting, which we saw a lot last year, you have more shooter, you have more shooting on this team this year than you did last year. That's for sure. At least beginning of the year. But I I still think that there's work to be done if you're going to try to build an ideal, an ideal roster around Carl. Sounds good. Chris Hine, go get some rest. It was a long week. You actually have a couple of days off here without games. So yes. enjoy it. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Well, I'm, when I'm sure you will likely be our first four-time guest uh, next time you're on the show. I better be. Great conversation with Chris Hine. As always, we will see how, yeah, we'll see how the Wolves want to play in the, especially in these next twelve games without Malik Beasley. You know, it's going to be much more of a challenge now to to play. They want to to play the way they want to play. I would think if they really want to space the floor, shoot these threes, and play fast, he was very well suited for that. So implementing a new system on the fly without one of your best players to implement that only makes Finch's job more difficult. Let's do a little history lesson right now. Jeff Day wrote about this, uh, StarTribune.com Friday, 40-year anniversary today 
of the big brawl between the North Stars and Bruins, February 26, 1981. North Stars were on a 34-game winless streak at Boston Garden when they started piling up the penalties. Fights almost immediately 81 penalties in the game, 80 of them in the first period, 406 penalty minutes. North Stars end up losing 5-1, but they were proud of themselves. Glenn Sonmore said after the game, you're right, I'm proud, we made a stand. Sonmore almost got into a fight with uh, the Bruins head coach, Jerry Cheevers. And uh, it's just one of those things where I don't glorify violence, but I, th- when you think back on these days of hockey and 400 penalty minutes, uh, basically all in the first period, fighting from the outset, it almost makes you grin a little bit just because of of the history of it all and thinking about how hockey was back in the day. So read more about that in today's StarTribune.com on Friday. A really interesting and, and fun kind of look back at that moment in history. And let's end today with the cooler, Lavelle E. Neal Third, now Star Tribune columnist. You know him as a baseball writer for the last you know two decades in Minnesota. His role has transitioned his debut column Sunday in the Star Tribune and on StarTribune.com. Please read that. I'm really looking forward to where he takes this new role as columnist and uh, you know the direction he goes with that because you know he's he's a terrific person, talented writer, and a, a very good reporter. So I want to see what he's able to do with this new role, and I hope you guys will check that out as well. Thanks for listening all week. We'll be back Monday uh, with a really good show Monday, planning to talk uh, to uh, Jason Gerwin from The Streamable for an update on where we're at with streaming services like YouTube TV, Hulu, and the uh, continuing stare down with regional sports networks like Fox Sports North. So you won't want to miss that one Monday. Lots of other good stuff next week as well. Thank you for listening all week to the Daily Delivery Podcast. (laughs) 